0: This is Dennis Rundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, back on the show, uh, John J. Pendergast. He is a spiritual teacher, author, psychotherapist, and a retired adjunct professor of psychology, who now offers residential and online retreats. Uh, We'll have his uh, website posted up so you can follow up and find out uh, where those retreats are available. But today we're going to focus on his latest book, The Deep Heart, Our Portal to Presence. John, thank you so very much for coming back uh, to speak with us again. Oh, it's a delight to be back.
1: Hey, John, um, our readers, uh, I'm sorry, our listeners can go back to our first interview. You were actually one of our first uh, guests on the show. I Um, remember. And they will uh, be able to get more about your background, but... At the time you were on the show, a few years ago, um, we were talking about your previous book, In Touch. So now you have this book, The Deep Heart. Uh, So my opening question to you is, why this book and what have you learned in the interim that led
2: to this book? Good question. Well, um, all of this is kind of mysterious, you know, how one is kind of inspired to do some writing, and I knew after I finished in touch, which is about the inner sense of knowing, that I wanted to say more about the heart and about the ground um, and i was I was just kind of waiting to be um, kind of inspired and <clears throat> Uh, meanwhile, I began teaching more and doing residential retreats and leading and co-leading them, and I think that sharpened my um, experience of working um, in group and one-on-one in a in a retreat setting. So there was a, a deepening, I think, of the working with the material, of the sense of inner knowing, and working with the heart area and working with the ground. And then it was it was kind of interesting. I was being interviewed by Tammy Simon of Sounds True who I know has been a guest on your program, and mm-hmm. and for some uh, symposium that she was doing. And as we were warming up, she said, John, I think you have a couple of more books in you, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and she was right, you know. So we had an email exchange, and I proposed, you know, writing about the deep heart, and she was very open to it, as was the rest of the Sounds, crew, Sounds True crew. So um, it felt like heart was really... Um, it's such a central focus in, in everyone's life, really. It's, uh, it's one of the major portals to our essential nature. One is in the mind, and one is in the heart, and one is in the hara. And again and again in my work with people, um, <clears throat> I just kept coming back to the centrality of the heart area and, and its multidimensionality. So I touched on this subject in the prior book, and, it, and I, I really wanted to develop it further to, to map it uh, with more precision and to help people access it more easily.
0: John, I, I wanted to follow up on that. Uh, in your book, uh, at least a, a few times, probably several times, when you talk about meditation, when you talk about self-inquiry, you talk about putting your the uh, person settling down uh, uh, and putting their attention on their heart area, and, and I assume you mean the physical heart, and then asking questions, and then, not uh, using the mind to sort of analyze as we usually do to get answers, but to let answers come uh, mm-hmm. from the mind, I guess, to the heart I mean, Maybe I'm not stating it correctly, but uh, explain to us a little bit about the mechanics of that and how that works. And are people, is this a, a skill that people develop over time practicing these
2: mm-hmm.
0: techniques of inquiry, or is it something that everybody innately has?
2: Ah, uh, I think both are true. And And just one small um, correction. When I talk about the heart area, it's the center of the chest. So it begins with a physical location, but it's not the physical heart itself. So what you're describing um, to the listeners is a particular little method that I've developed over the years, which I call Heartfelt Meditative Inquiry. And it's particularly useful for deconstructing core limiting beliefs, but also for sitting with an essential question and it taps into heart wisdom. This is the underlying principle that there is a way of knowing and being and feeling that's intrinsic to everyone. And we're more or less in touch with it. So if we can, you know, let our attention know that we don't have a problem to solve that kind of gives the mind permission to relax. And let attention drop down into the heart area and we may want to put our hands over the center of our chest and and imagine for instance that we can breathe directly into and out from this area. This is a way of guiding attention into the heart area and the and the physical level is just one dimension of the heart we have the heart is the center of remarkable sensitivity, Um, there's a kind of architecture to the heart psychologically, the deeper you go, younger layers of the psyche you get to and there are essential layers, uh, which are I poetically call the soul. And then behind that are undivided nature, the way that we are connected with everyone and everything. So this is really the center of heart wisdom, it's a combination of love, and clarity, uh, wisdom, and we we all have it, uh, it's it's a matter of actually learning how to listen and attune with it. And one of my key instructions, which you mentioned, Stennis, was not to go to the mind for an answer. So let's say we're struggling with a chronic sense of contraction or tension in our body or an emotional reaction, or we are burdened with a core limiting belief, such as uh, I'm not enough or... Uh, something's really wrong with me. I'm unlovable. I, I don't deserve to exist. Often these are operating, you know, below the level of conscious awareness. We can bring our attention to the heart area, and pose the question: What is my deepest knowing about this? About this belief, for instance, or about this issue. And then to be quiet. And this is a very important step: to be quiet, to not to go to our minds for an answer. Because usually when we pose a question, uh, or one is posed to us, uh, we tend to go to our thinking mind, our ordinary strategic thought. And this, in fact, is often the source of the problem. <laughs> so we really want to tap into a different operating system, if you will, and that's, that's the, the wisdom and, and the kindness of the heart. So we pose the question, what is my deepest knowing about this belief that I'm unlovable? for instance, or unworthy. These are often um, <clears throat> issues that constellate in the heart area. We let it go and we're quiet, and we listen. And we open, we're not looking for a yes or a no, or a right or a wrong, a binary response. We're actually tapping into a whole body, wholehearted, whole body, holistic response. And um, this is been described by Eugene Genlin as felt-sensing. Uh, it's a capacity to feel and sense into something before thinking and feeling and sensation have separated. So it's, it's both intrinsic and it takes a little bit of attention and practice to get a feel for it. And it can be helpful for someone else to validate when a response, a true response comes. And very often a response will come very quickly. But it may not come verbally, it may come as just a felt sense, a kind of sense of illumination, of a lighting up, a relaxation, a release. It may come as a direct knowing uh, that our core limiting belief is totally irrelevant, has nothing to do with who we really are. Uh, It could come as a word, but when it does, it has transformative power. And we can feel that as a, a subtle or dramatic sense of release. And when that happens, it's very important to let it in, not to dismiss it by the mind, but actually to um, receive it as a kind of gift from uh, our deepest self. And and when we do, this is really part of the transformational process, how the conditioned body-mind begins to orient to the light of awareness, our true nature. So this is what I've been really interested in developing. It's like finding these... Um, intrinsic connections between our conditioned uh, body mind and our unconditioned nature as pure consciousness, and to begin to source our conditioned body mind in, in, in our true nature. And so this is one of the processes that I often invite people to explore, uh, to, to get in touch with their conditioned mind and reactive feelings and, and somatic contractions, and then uh, inquire into um, you know, what our deepest knowing is about them. Now another way, and I'll just go in a little more, I know there are other questions here, sometimes just sensing into the body when there's a tightness, I may encourage people to ask, what's in the very center of this? Don't think about it. And what that does is it invites attention to be more intimate with our direct experience. And this is a critical point because we're not trying to change our experience, we're actually trying to understand and and get closer and be more intimate with it. When we approach our direct experience with this kind of innocent, curious, affectionate attention, it has a way of opening up very naturally. So coming as much as we can from presence, coming as much as we can from our deepest knowing, coming as much as we can with the quality of affectionate, curious attention, our conditioned body-mind begins to open up because it's been waiting Actually, to be met with understanding and with love.
1: Mm-hmm. John, um, I have a, a couple of questions. First, um, I'd like, if you would, to unpack a little bit more what you mean by heart. When people, mm. you know, the the heart has been <laughs> used yeah. in many, many ways over the course of history. It's been used in spiritual circles and. Uh, artistic circles and so forth so we have the heart as a physical organ we have mm. the heart as a kind of metaphor for mm. for feeling and especially deep uh, feelings of love and affection and we mm. have we have the 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 more esoteric meaning of heart as uh, associated with something uh non-physical or more subtle mm. than the physical often mm-hmm. associated with uh of the chakra in that area uh, and, the, and the, the sort of subtle body. Uh, uh-huh. And so uh, I, I'd like you to unpack that more and address the question whether um, using the term heart does uh, possibly localize things too much. And, and the other question I have, and you may as well go f- you know, put them all together, is when you speak about heart knowing or heart wisdom, uh-huh. how does that relate to what we normally think of as intuition?
2: Oh, okay, um, you're right um, in terms of the first question that there can be some uh, danger of localization, over localization when we speak of the heart too concretely. And but this requires some nuance, I think, and, and this is why I speak of the heart as being multidimensional. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for instance, Ramana Maharshi spoke of the heart of awareness. And he said that it was neither inside nor outside of the body. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, so where is it? <laughs> well, it's nowhere, <laughs> it's nowhere and everywhere. But he was speaking of it metaphorically, um, you know, as the very center of consciousness or the very center of being, uh, but in a completely non-local way. Nonetheless, it's interesting that he would use this term, the heart, or in Sanskrit, khudaya, khudaya, um, to refer to this. So that's like the non-local or non-dual dimension of the heart. And, and I would use, I refer to that as the a, as a great heart or the universal heart. And it's uh, with neither subject nor object. It's, uh, when we're in touch with that, there's a sense of our inherent wholeness and also of our inherent non-separateness with everyone and everything. So this is the deepest um, undivided uh, dimension of the heart. Then a more subtle, just like the subtlest level of localization, I would refer to as the soul, or personal essence. And here, it's like this is the boundary between the formless and form. This is where a unique individual expression begins to emerge, and and it's an archetypal level. And this is can be felt very back of the heart area. It's almost... Uh, it's interesting, it's like there's an architecture to the heart area and it goes from a more localized, concrete, um, formed level to increasingly subtle and then uh, formless level. And, and it's a movement very often experiences going from front to back. So um, that's a very beautiful and intimate level and, and many people and many spiritual traditions um, point to this as kind of the ultimate realization. I don't think it is because there's still a subtle perceiver and perceived and subject object duality. Nonetheless, a very precious and profound level of experience. Then, more formed still, we come into psychological levels and emotional levels. And this is, you know, what's often referred to in our popular literature and music um, as the heart. And this is also involves the, the heart chakra and the, the energy center as well. And this can be very defended and we can be very out of touch with our hearts and very, um, very unable actually to relate with people and out of touch with a sense of gratitude and generosity and awe. So uh, there are these different dimensions. And uh, it's, I think, important to realize that there is this dimensionality and... Not to get stuck in any particular dimension but realize that this is um, this is really available uh, to all of us as to your second question in terms of intuition um, it may it, I, I would say um, yes you know heart wisdom is definitely a form of intuition there are many different kinds of intuition there can be a mental intuition or a somatic intuition and uh, this knowing that comes through the heart definitely has uh, an, in, an intuitive quality. That is to say, there's a directness to it. It's not analytic, um, but it, more as a, a knowing from within. And that's actually the definition of what intuition is.
0: Uh, John, uh, you are both a psychotherapist and a spiritual teacher. Somebody is uh, <coughs> uh, counseling. Uh, and somebody approaches you as a spiritual teacher do you uh, approach, do you treat them or do you work with them differently than if uh, they approach you as a psychotherapist
2: um, it's a good another excellent question. Most of the people that come to me are familiar with my approach and my work and they're uh, engaged in the process of awakening or recognizing their true nature and they're wanting to work with uh, both facilitating that as well as facing and and being with their conditioning. So um, our work kind of moves fluidly between these levels because they're not essentially separate. I, I certainly accent um, the recognition of our, our deepest nature or true nature, but also the importance of integrating and and embodying that, which means really working in a very intimate way with our conditioned body-mind. Now, it is true, I have some clients that I began with many years ago who were referred to me um, really explicitly for psychological work only, uh, for early developmental trauma, for instance, and our work is largely stays on that level, um, because that's actually what they need to work on, and that's,
0: mm-hmm. what,
2: they, that's what they're able to work on. Um, so, um, a minority of my uh, my clients from many years ago, um, small minority at this point work, work there, but most, as I said, come to me um, with this interest in both domains. And I would say, this is a growing interest among people who've been on the spiritual path for many years, and they've gotten stuck. You know, they feel a dryness in their practice, or they feel like it hasn't really transposed to their relationships, or their work, or to their daily life. And that requires you know attending to this other dimension of their experience and so um, there's a growing number of therapists who are um, oriented both to a non-dual approach to spirituality and and um, the embodiment of that very good uh john
1: as you you may know um i wrote a book on intuition about 100 years ago um, uh, and when I did, uh, it became apparent to me that while I was encouraging people to uh, open up to their intuitive knowing, I also had to caution people against being uh, overly trusting of the uh-huh. impulses that come from inside because we often fool ourselves or believe, we do. What, we believe what comes up. When we want to believe it, <laughs> and uh, do you run into that? Is that part of your teaching with with respect yes. to heart knowing? And- uh,
2: yeah, because intuition it is a subtle, um, it is very subtle, and your point is well taken. and And it's often obscured by fear and desire. So we really want something to be a certain way, or we're afraid it's not. It is not going to work out, and that really distorts and colors our intuition. So. One of the interesting things when when I talk about heart wisdom is to distinguish it from kind of ordinary thinking mm. uh, and ordinary feeling because it has it's very quiet um it's very subtle and and has that quality of stillness to it, and it doesn't insist uh it's not attached to results as the way the ordinary <laughs> you know egoic mind is um so it doesn't it's insist, it doesn't deny, um, it, it has a much, I, I kind of refer to it as the quiet guest at the noisy banquet of life. And it helps to, um, to learn actually the impact when we do touch something that is intuitively accurate, because there's a feeling of, of not necess- there's not a feeling of excitement. Uh, about it, that is to say it 's not um, stimulating it 's more a sense of, of a quiet release, a quiet opening, a quiet sense of illumination, as I was saying before. Um, I mean sometimes actually, when, when there is um, an intuitive knowing that arises and we release from an old story that we have, it can be you know, uh, joyful, and people can begin to laugh quite uproariously. Uh, when they free themselves uh, from that. But generally speaking, it's very subtle and quiet, and it's not attached to any particular outcome.
0: Uh, John, John, does one, is it a goal to culture oneself uh, so that one is uh, predominantly uh, thinking with the heart, from the heart?
2: I would say it's something that both individually and collectively we critically need to learn. Um, we 're so seduced by the ordinary strategic mind, and um, we so much want to know in order to be in control in order to survive and Of course, this is you know totally normal. Um, we all do it to some extent, and the mind is a, a wonderful instrument um, you know that allows us to have a conversation like we are today, but it's extremely limited, and so it's very important. To distinguish between knowledge and wisdom and to know that there is actually a different way of knowing and feeling and being in the world and and uh, that this is actually our evolutionary um, imperative, I would say uh, to make this shift individually and collectively because if we don't, I mean we can see the extraordinary um, mess we've gotten into you know with climate disruption and and all that goes with it, and this is because we we are approaching our our lives from a very limited perspective and not recognizing both our interconnectedness and our undivided nature. And that realization of our, our true undivided nature is something that's the fruition of the awakened heart. So uh, as much as attention can shift from the head to the heart, um, Really, the more fulfilled at home we'll be, and the wiser we'll be in facing the many challenges that we have as individually and collectively. Uh, John,
1: um, you um, point to the practices around the heart that you use in the book uh, as having value on many levels, mm-hmm. you know, just helping us navigate through life and making decisions and being more in touch with our inner nature and one of them is also as a, a, a portal to uh, non-dual awakening or to you know the awareness of our uh, true self um, mm-hmm. I, I was just in because you mentioned Ramana Maharshi I was just in Tiruvannamalai a few weeks ago and. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he, you know, he is a centerpiece of of everything, uh-huh. and uh-huh. It, it it became even more obvious to me there that um, the relationship between non-dual awareness and what in spiritual circles we would consider devotional practices uh, that that tend to center on uh-huh. the heart. Do you go into that at all? To to the kind of devotional practices associated with um, spiritual
2: uh, pathways? Well, um, it's, it's a lovely question. Um, I, I, have, um, I, I don't talk about it much in the book, but um, it's interesting. I, I, in my own spiritual journey, I, I have elements that were both devotional and, um, and then also oriented towards self-inquiry. Like take Ramana for example, he didn't have a teacher that he was devoted to, but he was devoted to the mountain, right, right, as an embodiment of Shiva, and um, which is always kind of interesting and puzzling to me until I went to Ramana (laughs) Ashram and I sat in one of his caves, you know, and perhaps you did as well, and Mm -hmm. and had a profound experience of um, kind of light, a column of light in the core of the mountain, and. And uh, read later that this is how some people experience the presence of Shiva. So, so Ramana had this devotion, you know, to a form. But um, uh, it's it's. I, I think what comes to me as we talk about this is it's really taken the form of the devotion to truth, mm. the devotion to reality, and and this is a really profound commitment, uh, not to a particular form. Uh, I have been devoted uh, somewhat to different forms, but that's really fallen away. And it, it feels like the devotion here, uh, for me, is really a devotion to truth, a devotion to reality. It's what I love most and, and most um, want to live in accord with. And I do talk about that in the book as, as really an important part. For instance, in, med- in meditative self-inquiry, the, really, the first question we want to ask is, do I really want to know? Do I really want to know what I know? Do I really want to know the truth? And that's a question to sit with because very often we're ambivalent about it. Parts of us do and parts of us don't or, or very ambivalent creatures and parts of us really do want to let go into the in what we intuit to be our deepest nature, to surrender. And other parts are afraid of losing control and have stories uh, about what that will mean. So... It's in this form, I would say. It's the devotion to truth that I do. Um, I do bring it up in, in the book.
0: Great. Bill, so, uh, do you have any final questions you'd like to ask?
1: I do. I, I there's one in particular. We don't have much time, John, but I was struck by your reference in the book to head, heart, and horror. Perhaps mm-hmm. you can unpack that in a couple of minutes for.
2: Oh, oh my goodness! <laughs> Small <laughs> question. So in my work with people, it does feel like there are three major centers that um require illumination or awakening. And those are the the head, the heart, and the horror. And the the head I'm referring to uh, our thinking and our stories and all the reactive feelings and somatic contractions that go with that, and our tendency to identify um with our thinking and with our stories, and um, to take ourselves as a separate self, even as a separate observer. And when we deeply question and see through uh, those attachments and identifications, there is a sense of opening, profound opening to a sense of spaciousness and freedom. And you'll see many teachers and many titles of books using um, referring to these essential qualities of spaciousness and freedom. And this is a beautiful and powerful opening to be free from the mind, uh, to know ourselves as infinite consciousness. It has that quality of clarity and sometimes of a certain coolness or detachment. So this is the beginning of a process, which is, for me, a descending of awareness. And the next step is actually for this same awareness to penetrate into the heart area, in the area of feeling. And this requires uh, a deep examination into the nature of the heart and our our level of identity as in, in feeling and to discover that we are that which we seek on a deep level of feeling, that we are inherently whole and undivided. And there's a, that, that is the fruition of the awakening of the heart, is the revelation of our undivided or non-dual d- nature. And the final step is really... Um, the hara, or, which means belly in Japanese, and this lower area of the body, which is often ignored in spiritual traditions, an area of um, interpersonal power, of sensuality, sexuality, and of um, survival. And this area often uh, is implicated in uh, the spiritual process. And until it's fully, kind of not fully, but increasingly awakened and embraced and integrated. Um, we haven't, we don't, haven't um, discovered a fully embodied um, sense of who we are. So they, they all have their uh, important essential qualities. And, and when the Hara awakens, um, we feel a sense of profound ground and stability and aliveness too, because we're tapping into the current of life. So the awakening of the heart brings a sense of this unconditional love and the awakening of the Hara, the sense of profound aliveness and ground. Great. How's, that for, how's that for two minutes? Wonderfully okay. done.
0: Fantastic. Well, we'll have to have a third ep, ep, episode or session with you. Uh, but, John, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, all of the information about uh, your book, and again, I'll mention the name of the book for our listeners, uh, The Deep Heart, Our Portal to Presence, John J. Prendergast, uh, is available. And uh, we'll have all that information uh, posted up on our, on our, our website. Phil, any final thoughts or words?
1: Oh, I have a 1,000, but uh, I know we have to call it a day. In fact, Dennis, I know you have to run. So why don't you uh, sign off and I'll conclude with John, because I do have another question.
0: All right, very good. I'm signing off.
1: OK, thanks, then. (laughs)
0: OK, bye, Dennis.
1: John, another question, um, a a final question. uh, you live at the intersection of spirituality and psychology, and we've talked about this in the past with you and, and other people. Um, you, uh, in, in the deep part allude early on to the phenomenon of spiritual bypass, and I'm curious to know from your perspective, this is something that's of interest to many of us and to me and our listeners, has that... Um, tendency changed over the last few years since we last spoke to you on the, on the show, and uh, what what have you seen in in that regard?
2: Hmm. Well, of course, it's been five years since we spoke, and um, I I think I think it has. I think um, I mean, first of all, the phrase spiritual bypassing, uh, you know, means that that we basically uh, try to sidestep our psychological conditioning and go directly to our true nature in the hopes that that will resolve um, all of our issues and problems and relationship and work and that will be you know, fulfilled and, and deeply peaceful and loving in a steady way. And um, in a way, it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not really spiritual bypassing. It's sort of in the name of spirituality we're avoiding. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, I, I think it's really a mental... Yeah. avoidance rather than a spiritual bypassing. But be that as it may, it's referring to something that's very real uh, and very common. And um, I would say there's a gradual and growing understanding of um, the importance of directly facing our psychological material. And I do think, I mean, there's a lot of resistance uh, still, There's there are plenty of spiritual t- teachers who... Will dismiss and diminish the value of psychological work and um, but I think there's and I, I happen to be well networked and friends with a number of different teachers and i I do think there is a growing understanding um, of the importance of uh, facing it not in order not as part of a self improvement project not to reinforce the ego but actually to welcome into presence um, that which is not yet fully understood and loved and and released into that, and in other words the the embodiment process so um, i do I do see that teachers are more sophisticated psychologically that they're making more referrals appropriately when they have students who are stuck or developing particularly with developmental trauma, and just a word about that Phil developmental trauma for your listeners who may not be familiar with it is something we've learned a lot more about in the last few decades and it's as children when we have chronic ongoing traumatic experiences either neglect or abuse at the hands of our caretakers it has quite a profound impact on our psyche and uh, affects you know relationships and work and because as children you know we're we have unusually sensitive nervous systems the, the people who are neglecting and abusing us are are our, our primary caretakers and these patterns go on over many years so it leaves a deep imprint and we're understanding this more and and uh the importance of working with it so yeah uh, that's that's the long answer the short answer is yes i think so
1: good no that's been my
2: observation too but you're much
1: more on the front line so it's good to have that uh uh, validated. And I, and I uh, credit you, people like you and others we've had on the show mm-hmm. for uh, uh, bringing that to people's awareness. And it's, it's quite a shift in contemporary spirituality and an, and an important one. John, mm-hmm. thanks so much for coming on. Again, the name of the book, The Deep Heart, our portal to presence. Best of luck with it. And we'll be in touch. Great. Thank you, Phil.